Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. So we are, uh, we're in a series uh, starting last week, this is part two today, on our core values. So last week you heard about the new updated core values here at Bergen Park Church. We've got them up here on the screen. In fact, you can go to the next slide so you can kind of see what those values are, invitation, transformation, revelation, anchored in the Bible, discipleship, life in community, and then mission, life on mission. And you'll see that those arrows all kind of point right back into each other. The idea is that from each one of these values, the next flows. And in this kind of continuous circle with the gospel, with our faith in Jesus Christ as really the centerpiece of all of this, So last week, Pastor Jason walked us through the first of these values that was invitation, come as you are, come as you are. Now, the idea behind that is that because God has come to us and invited us into relationship with him, we also are invited to find our place in the local church, right? To come to participate in the life of the church, in worship, in study, in the Word of God, in accountability relationships, in mission, and then that should lead us right back into this idea again of of invitation. So this week I want to unpack the meaning of our second uh, value, and we do have a slide for that one as well on, um, on transformation. So that's actually Revelation, if you can back up and find... We'll do that one next week, that's a good one too, but um, transformation transformation, the idea of a life-changing relationship with God. Now, this one should be pretty easy, transformation, right? If you want to change, go change, right? How, how hard can it be? Make a resolution, make a plan, implement the plan, right? Um, it's easy, Now, I could give you a list of things to do. I could offer you maybe seven steps to becoming a better version of you or that that sort of thing. I could urge you to go try a little bit harder, maybe send you out on your way this morning with my pastoral blessing to be transformed. I'm not going to do that, however, this morning because it doesn't work, okay? I know you. I know you too well. I know myself too well. I know our struggles, okay? We've we've got to be real here. We know how the human condition generally works. We know our limitations. We know our tendencies. We know our sin. We know our struggles. We're all human here, right? We're all human. We're not going to be transformed that easily. I can't change you. You can't necessarily change you. but I do want to give you some hope this morning. I want to encourage you with this. What I can do this morning, I can show you Jesus. We can go to God's word. We can see Jesus. And I think that's really at the root of this idea of transformation. If we're going to be changed, it starts with our relationship with God. It starts with Jesus Christ. So turn with me to John chapter 8 this morning. We're going to read from verse 2 to verse 11. John 8, 2 through 11. 
Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we delight to be in your presence this morning, to read your word, to sing your praise. Lord, I ask that through this study this morning, you would, you would show us who you are. That's really been on my heart this week, that we would see Jesus. Would you show us the Son, Jesus Christ, through our study of your word this morning? Would you illuminate the meaning of this passage to us? Would you reveal to us our sin, our need? And would you guide us to repentance, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen. So John chapter 8, 2 through 11, Daniel B. Wallace, a New Testament scholar, senior research professor at Dallas Theological Seminary in Texas, describes this passage as his favorite Bible passage that isn't in the Bible, okay? If you look at your Bible, uh, Pew Bibles, the, the ones that we have here, ESV version, you'll see a nice little note in there. And if you brought a Bible with you, there's probably a note or some sort of footnote clarifying that the earliest Greek manuscripts actually don't contain these verses, okay? And I suspect you probably already saw that, and so I just want to clear that up from, from the get-go here, that the earliest Greek manuscripts do not, in fact, contain these few verses. In fact, the story of the woman caught in adultery doesn't show up in Greek manuscripts until about the 5th century. Um, its mention is absent pretty much from all early writings, uh, early commentators in the church. And more problematic still is that according to commentator New Testament scholar uh, D.A. Carson, the linguistic style itself of this passage looks a lot more like something you'd see in the Gospel of Luke than what you'd find in the Gospel of John. So I just want you all to be aware of that reality as we come to this passage this morning. So the question logically becomes, why are we reading it then? Why, why preach this passage? Why read this passage? Well, I think there are a few reasons we want to look at this text. First, we study it because its inclusion has been long included by, by the church. 
Now, that's not necessarily by itself uh, a reason or the reason to, to preach this passage. Just because some other smart people in history said it's okay doesn't necessarily make it true. But we want to look to the church fathers. We want to look to others uh, through the history of, of the Christian faith, uh, the Protestant church, Catholic church. Have, have they included this passage? And the answer to that is yes, they've used this as, as, as something instructive for the church. Secondly, we study it because its teaching is in perfect alignment with the character and the activity of Jesus Christ as recorded in known canonical scripture. What Jesus says here, what we see here, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, how Jesus confronts them, his compassion, his mercy, his love toward this woman, this is perfectly in alignment with what we expect of Jesus, the kinds of stories we, we hear about Jesus. And the third reason we would look at this passage and learn from it is because no major doctrines or teachings of the church are affected negatively by its inclusion in Scripture. We can certainly learn a lot from this text. In fact, there's more reason to read and study this passage than there is to reject it. So with this in mind, even if we have reason to question the possible origins of this particular fragment of Scripture, there doesn't seem to be any good reason to doubt the actual authenticity of this story. Most scholars agree that this truly happened. This was an encounter Jesus had with this adulterous woman. So let's look again at the text. The story actually really builds toward a crescendo in, in verse 11. That's the, that's the verse we tend to focus on. Neither do I condemn you, go and leave your life of sin. But before we arrive at that crescendo, we find Jesus teaching in the temple. You go back to verse 2, he's there in the temple teaching as was his calling. Jesus is confronted by the scribes and Pharisees as was their habit. Jesus responds to their hypocrisy and exposes their sin as was his custom. And finally, Jesus speaks a truthful direct and healing word to the woman whose life and sin had been put on full display, as was his nature to do. So I want to make just a couple of observations about this passage this morning and how it really guides us into this concept of, of transformation. First of all, I suggest that only Jesus truly sees us for who we are. Jesus sees us for who we are. See, if you can't see yourself for who you are, if you can't see your sin or your brokenness or your pain or your fallen condition, if you cannot see yourself, you can't change. How are you supposed to change if you don't recognize the problem? But here's the thing. If you're not seen by Jesus, loved by Jesus, in relationship with Jesus, you can't truly see yourself. Transformation comes from an encounter with Jesus who sees us. Jesus sees you. He saw this poor, wretched woman who'd been caught in sin. Now, we don't know who this woman was. We know really nothing about her. We know that she was obviously guilty in the eyes of the people, but that's, that's about it. We know that she was under capital condemnation by means of stoning. But who she was, we know very little now, Deuteronomy chapter 22 gives us maybe some clues as to who this woman is. 
So here's just a, a basic principle for, for hermeneutics or for interpretation. If you're struggling to understand something in a text, oftentimes Scripture interprets itself. Look at other passages that may give you a hint or a clue as to what's going on. So I want to actually take you back to Deuteronomy chapter 22 briefly. And we're going to just read a, a few verses here that I think will give us some insight into what's going on as the Pharisees bring this accusation against the woman. So starting in verse 21, well, actually verse 20 talks about uh, a young woman having been caught in an adulterous type of situation, a young unmarried woman. It says, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of the city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge evil from Israel. It goes on to say, If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death with stones." The woman, young woman, because she did not cry out for help, which would have indicated that she was being raped, though she was in the city. And the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Okay, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking the meaning of Deuteronomy 22. That's a whole other context, a whole other passage. But this at least gives us some indication of what exactly the Pharisees are referring to here in John chapter 8. Now, the prescribed punishment for a young, unfaithful, betrothed virgin would have been stoning, as you see in the text. However, the mode of punishment for a married adulterer is not specified. And in fact, some Jewish scholars would suggest that strangling was the mode that was used in that, that case. And again, I'm not going to unpack the historic context of all of that stuff this morning. But just understand the difference here, what's going on, and why we might be led to believe that this is a young, unmarried woman. A young girl, um, betrothed perhaps, who's been caught in this act. So, why she was compelled into the arms of someone other than her fiancé, again, we don't know. Why she and not her lover was brought before Jesus, again, is unknown. How the Pharisees knew of her adultery and why she is targeted here is unknown. What we know is that Jesus saw her for who she was, and he helped her see herself. Okay? Jesus, in his wisdom, both human and divine wisdom, could see this woman's life in its fullness. He saw the sinner, he saw the victim, he saw the pawn, he saw a broken, hurting soul. And she was a sinner. She'd been caught in the act. Okay, she'd been seen with the wrong person, in the wrong place, perhaps lying in the arms of the wrong man, leaving the wrong house. There doesn't seem to be any question as to her guilt in the text. Nowhere in this passage does the young woman actually try to defend herself against this accusation. It seems clear she'd been caught. Jesus doesn't question the claim. Again, it seems clear She'd been caught in, in this sin. Now, beyond this, obviously, the witnesses boldly defend the claim as well. 
So it seems evident, it seems clear from the text she had been caught in sin. Now, we've all probably been caught a time or two in our lives. Maybe we can relate to what's going on here to some extent. I think back about my own life and those moments I had been caught, caught stealing as a child, shoving candy into my mouth out of one of those bulk bins at the grocery store, you know, caught in the act, caught lying, candy, (laughs) what candy, as I've got the evidence all over me, caught a few times speeding as I got older, we've probably all been there as well. I was caught smoking one time after church, behind the church with some friends. That didn't end well for me either, (laughs) right? We've all been caught, and I realize that some of these examples, they seem like fairly anodyne examples. We can probably think of worse instances in our lives, and I think for every time we've been caught in some insalubrious act, there are probably a hundred other times we got away with it. We didn't get caught. We weren't seen. But like the five-year-old me standing in the grocery store, again with the evidence of my sin in my mouth, in my hands, this woman too had been caught in an act of sin. But she's more than just a sinner here. We also see that she is a casualty of her culture. See, I don't know where her lover ended up in all of this. Maybe he was faster than she was and was able to escape the mob. Certainly, it was easier to accuse a woman at this time in history, in this particular culture. Either way, uh, because of her status as a young, likely unmarried woman in a culture that didn't afford women very high status, she seems to be hopelessly condemned. She's in a really bad position here. Now, I don't mean to glibly dismiss the gravity of her sin but I can't help but see her also as an unfortunate casualty of her culture. And I think there are likely many people today who can relate in some way to these kinds of biases because of maybe their economic status or their ethnicity or their background or some other factor that puts them in a vulnerable position. So yes, she'd sinned, but she seems to have sinned in the wrong time, in the wrong culture, in the wrong place. On top of this, she was a pawn. She was a pawn in the Pharisees' game of accusation against Jesus. Now, sadly, this young woman was used for the sole purpose of trapping Jesus in his words. Do you notice this in the passage? Jesus is also in a very difficult place. You see, if he had said, her guilt demands the death penalty, go ahead and stone her, he would have undermined Roman rule which did not look kindly on conquered peoples administering capital punishment outside of the constraints of Roman law. Now, there are instances like Acts chapter 7, the stoning of Stephen, where these things took place. But generally, the Jews were very, very careful about capital punishment. The Romans didn't like it. So Jesus would have, if he said, go ahead and stone her, he would have undermined the Romans. He would have gotten himself into trouble. If Jesus had said, let her go in peace, leave her alone, he would have undermined Mosaic law and been guilty of rejecting the laws of his own people. You see the trap here. There's there's no right answer. If he had failed to answer this question with, with wisdom and compassion, 
He would have lost credibility in the eyes of the crowd. They expected him to be a wise and kind and loving teacher, somebody who taught with authority. Again, he's trapped. There's no right answer. Now understand that this woman was not going to be stoned. It's highly unlikely they were actually going to carry out this punishment. The whole point is to trap Jesus. Okay, some Jewish scholars point to the idea that every hundred years, every, maybe even maybe every generation, but it was large gaps of time between capital punishments. This stuff didn't happen very often. So she's not there to be punished. She's there to be used to accomplish someone else's political end. She's a pawn and, and very little more than that in the eyes of the Pharisees. And then finally, something else I think we need to appreciate is that this woman was a broken, hurting person in desperate need of love and in desperate need of forgiveness. Imagine the shame. Imagine the embarrassment, the overall emotional discomfort she likely experienced as she stood there, disheveled, wrapped in whatever clothing she happened to find as she was dragged from her bed. Every eye of those temple goers was on her. There were likely friends, neighbors, family members standing there watching this event unfold. So I hope this paints a clearer picture of our adulteress in this situation. Sinner, victim, pawn, deeply broken, hurting, wretched, person. That's her situation. And here's the point. The scribes and the Pharisees saw this woman as an opportunity. Jesus saw her as someone in desperate need of transformation, desperate need of gospel. And I think the way Jesus responded to her showed her who she truly was. So if you want to be transformed, you need to be willing to acknowledge that Jesus sees you for who you are. The only way to see yourself is to stop trying to hide from the one who truly and clearly sees you. See, there's no use here acting like a child trying to hide under their their blankets. This idea, if I can't see you, you can't see me. Adam and Eve tried that in the Garden of Eden, sewing together their fig leaves Maybe he won't see us. Maybe he won't recognize that we have sinned. Or even adults trying to hide, hiding under a blanket, thinking you won't be seen. When you have a nightmare, pulling the blankets up over your head as if that pack of wolves that was chasing you won't catch you if you've got a blanket over your head. I've I've done that a few times. Somehow wolves show up in my dreams from time to time. But anyway, that's beside the point. Being seen, being known by God allows us to see and know God, right? Which in turn allows us to see and know ourselves, which then allows us to better see and know God. That's just kind of how it works. John Calvin talks about this in in book one of his Institutes of the Christian Religion. You've got to know God in order to know yourself. And the better you know yourself, the better you can engage with God in this kind of cycle or circle, If you want to know yourself rightly, you've got to know God rightly, and and, and you've got to be seen by God, known by God. And this leads to my second observation about the text. Only Jesus can truly change us. Sanctification begins with an encounter with Jesus Christ. Go and sin no more 
That only happens once you've looked into the loving face of Jesus Christ. Go and sin no more. That only happens when we see the fullness of God's love and His mercy and His grace and His holiness and His justice and His wrath, when we get the full picture of who God is, when we see the cross. Go and sin no more only really makes sense if the one who spoke these words was prepared to bear this woman's sin and to bear the wrath of God against sin. You see what Jesus has done. He's not just giving us empty words, go and sin no more. He actually paid for that sin. He gave his life for us. So when we at Bergen Park Church talk about transformation, a life-changing relationship with God, we mean to tell you that in Christ you are made holy, you are purified. And through Christ you are becoming holy. You are becoming purified as you walk in and live in the gospel every day. See, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. He forgives us our sins and purifies us from all unrighteousness, as we read in 1 John or Romans 8. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of, or the, law of the Spirit, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from, from the law of sin and death. And how does this happen? Well, in Christ. Salvation is to acknowledge that Jesus sees you and knows you. Salvation is to know him back, to encounter Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit who wakes us up and convicts us of sin and indwells us for that transformation. Now, I'm going to be honest. We don't know what became of this woman in in John chapter 8. I have no idea where she ended up. No clue where she went. Was she fundamentally and radically transformed by this encounter? I have no idea. Did she return to her former lifestyle with no remorse whatsoever? Again, I I don't know. But I can say with some, I would say, high degree of certainty that she never forgot that encounter with Jesus. She never forgot that encounter with the Lord and Savior of the universe. I can say with some great deal of certainty that based on the words of John chapter 8, verse 11, Jesus changes us so that we can then change. He transforms us so that we can then transform. He heals us so that we can begin to heal. He makes us holy so that we can become holy. Now that seems maybe a little bit odd. What am I talking about? This is called sanctification. It simply means the idea of really being made holy, being declared holy, being made holy, being purified of sin in Christ so that we can begin to be purified of sin in Christ. And theologians often talk about this idea of a definitive and a progressive aspect to sanctification. Yes, you have been declared definitively holy by faith in Jesus Christ. You have been declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, and yet there is the Christian life we have to walk every day, working against that sin nature through the power of the Holy Spirit, getting better at walking with Jesus Christ. Now, look at it this way. Look at it this way. When when my family moved here to the United States a few years ago, my kids had never played American sports. They didn't know anything about football or baseball. They'd seen it a little bit on television, but they had no understanding, really, of the mechanics of these sports. 
And so a couple years ago, our kids started to play these sports. My younger son started playing baseball. My older son got on the football team at Evergreen High School. So I'll pick on my, my older son here for a moment. Now, the moment, the day we sent that email to the coach at Evergreen High School and said, we want to sign him up for football, that day, that moment, we signed him up. That day, we, we paid the fee for, for football. He became a football player, right? He, he, was, he was on the team. He was one of the guys. He was in, kind of, right? Now, he had some work to do. He was a football player. At least that's what it said on that piece of paper. But he was becoming a football player. His name was on the list, but he had some work to do. Conditioning, team meetings, practices, memorizing the playbook, learning the rules, perfecting skills, showing up day after day until he had proven himself and truly become one of the guys and earned their respect. You see how this works? Your name's on the list, but you got some work to do. This is how transformation works. It takes time. In fact, it takes a lifetime. It's wrought with setbacks and failures and injuries and wins and losses. But I want to encourage you again, don't give up. Neither do I condemn you. This is Jesus' invitation to you. Neither do I condemn you. He's brought you in. He's put your name on the roster if you receive him and accept his salvation by faith, then go leave your life of sin. That is what you're becoming with God's help by God's grace. And this happens, again, by the invitation of the Holy Spirit through time in the Word of God, through the help of God's people living in community, walking in discipleship together, working together in obedience to the mission of the church to make disciples. So if you want to change, if sin and its effects are to be removed and cleansed and healed and abandoned in your life, it's only because Jesus paid for that sin. And it's only by returning to this truth day after day through word and prayer and communion that you will see that work manifested in your life. So again, I can't send you on your way with a list of things to do, but I can do this. I can send you out with the gospel. You've got to know Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. The better we get to know him, that's where we start to see change in our lives. So we're going to go to a time of communion today. And communion is really a special time where we have this opportunity to repent of sin, to confess before the Lord the sin in our lives, to invite him to be a part of our lives. Often when I present communion, I talk about how it's, it's really just, it's saying yes to Jesus. When we take communion together, we're declaring publicly for everyone to see that we are followers of, of Jesus Christ. So communion is, yes, it's between you and God, but it's also about the church. So if you have not picked up the communion elements, we have some here at the front or also at the back of the sanctuary. So go ahead and grab those. And I'd like to read to you Paul's words as Paul explains the, the significance, the meaning of communion in 1 Corinthians. So we're going to look at uh, chapter 11. It 
The Apostle Paul gives these instructions. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And the basic idea here is that we do not want to take communion in a hypocritical way. Communion is for the body of Christ, for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And if that is you this morning, I want to urge you, encourage you to take communion. This is our spiritual nourishment where we are reminded of what Christ did for us. So we begin with the bread. Jesus took the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup and said, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, again, we come before you to worship you, to confess our sin, to invite your Holy Spirit to work in us. Lord, we need you as we sang. We need you every hour. We need you to transform our hearts, Lord. We recognize that we cannot do it on our own. We see our limitations. We see those sins that just keep popping up into our lives. And we give those to you, Lord. We know that Jesus Christ in his mercy and love bore our sin at the cross. And so we confess before you. And Lord, we receive. We thank you for your gift of salvation. Would you change us? And Lord, would you use us to also bring about transformation in our community? In Jesus' name, amen.